Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I uh, actually wasn't planning on preaching a Christmas message. I was going to just stay in the series that we had going through the Psalms of Asaph. And I actually wrote the message and everything. It's literally printed out to deliver to the media booth. I had it highlighted. I had the PowerPoint built and all of that. And I just figured, you know what? I need to quit being such a Scrooge. I need to talk about Christmas at least once. Um, and if people are going to come to church two days before Christmas, I, I should probably talk. I'd say something about the manger at least. Um, and uh, so it wasn't that bad. But really, I wrote it and I thought it dawned on me. This is two days before Christmas. Knucklehead, you probably should look into that theme a little bit. And then it was confirmed. And I just looked back at my notes that I'd written for Psalms chapter 75. And it's on... God's judgment. <laughs> so probably not, not what, what we need to hear before, uh, before Christmas. It's celebratory and Jesus's birthday, you know, that we, you know, we know happened on the 25th of December, America time. So um, anyway, um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six and a very familiar verse of scripture Um, I want to read it real quick and we'll we'll reference it again here in just a little bit. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this is the part of the verse that I, I want to dissect tonight and study a little bit. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In studying the names of Jesus, um, it made me curious um, as to what my name meant. I thought, you know what, if if Jesus' names and the Bible names had some great significance, I wonder what my parents saw in me to name me Tyler. Because I know they prayed about it and they wanted a name that, that projected my future and put God's favor on my life. And so I looked it up and proud to say that they they named me a name that means one who lays tile. (laughs) It has a secondary meaning as well that is as powerful. um, And it means doorkeeper of an inn. An old English word there, they say. And so I, I, I just want to thank you for that kind of ambition you had for my life. And I want you to know that I made it a little farther than holding the door open at Super 8, man. And God knows I, I, I have no, no desire or talent to lay tile. I couldn't do it if someone showed me how. It, it's just not my skill set. But anyway, um, the names are meaningful when it comes to Bible names. Very, very meaningful. In fact, God named the first man Adam because in the Hebrew that word means the earth. And he made him out of the dust of the ground. Um, He changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations, which is a great name considering he was the great patriarch. Um, Isaac and Rebekah, do you remember when, when they were pregnant, they laughed, they found out. And so God named their son Isaac, which means laughter. Jesus changed Simon's name in the New Testament to Peter. 
he, he, he saw that Simon was just a normal fisherman, but he saw potential in him. And Jesus helped him live up to that potential, changed his name to Peter because he knew that with God's help, he was going to be the rock of the early church. I mean, he, he was, he was going to be just a pillar in that place, and he was. And so names make a difference in the world of the Bible, and, and that means that the names of our Savior, of Jesus, make a difference. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of titles and names for Jesus Christ in the Bible. And each one of those, this is important, has dual revelation uh, for, for us. It reveals, number one, what Jesus Christ is in himself, as well as what he wants to do for us. And so Isaiah in his prophecy, which at large really is a prophecy um, mixed with, with both judgment and hope. It, it's like in Isaiah's prophecy, his whole book, he goes from Judging to, to giving hope, to issue in judgment, to giving hope. And, and, and in the midst of that, he prophesies that a child's going to be born. And he gives them these five names. Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And every one of those names tonight has a dual revelation, has a dual meaning. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to study each name. And I'm going to tell you what the name means for Jesus. Why is he named that? What qualifies him to have that name? And then I'm going to tell you what that name of Jesus means to you if you know him. So let's start with the very first one. His name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. This takes care of the dullness of life. So, so why, would, why would they call Jesus Wonderful? And I think this is important to understand right out of the gate that, that, that wonder... And the idea of wonder and wonderful, it kind of leads the list. And it makes sense because unless we know something of, of Jesus' wonder, we're not likely to come to him for counsel. If we don't stand in awe of Jesus, we're not likely to access his mighty power or, or his, his unmatchable peace. So, so, so we need to think about the ways in which Jesus is wonderful. He's wonderful in his birth. Luke 2, chapter 18 speaks of when the shepherds shared the news of Jesus' birth. They said this, all those that heard it marveled. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. The fact that God was manifested in the flesh would certainly be something to, to wonder at. Jesus was also wonderful in the life he lived on earth. Think about it. Whatever he touched took on new meaning. It took on new substance. He touched water and transformed it into wine. He touched a couple fishermen and transformed them into world changers. He touched a cross and transformed it into a symbol of God's love. Jesus was wonderful with his words. You remember when he spoke? Many of the people said he doesn't speak like the scribes speak. They speak as ones uh, you know, who quote authority. Jesus speaks as one who has authority. So he didn't, he didn't give no secondhand traditions. His message was firsthand truth from God. He was God. But he was wonderful in his death. That's why the songwriter, all the way back in the 1800s, wrote, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wondrous love, O my soul. It's why we sing even today, How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I could go on, but those are a few things that make Jesus Christ 
Wonderful, but, but what does his wonder mean for us? What does it mean for you if you know Jesus Christ? Here's, what, here's how it applies. We need to live in wonder of who he is. Well, what does wonder mean? The Hebrew word that Isaiah used means to separate. It means to distinguish. Throughout the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word is translated differently. Like, like it's used for the word marvelous. The word hidden. The word too high. The word too difficult. Even the word miracle. So to stand in wonder of Jesus means we stand in awe of his uniqueness. We stand in astonishment of who he is. It's exactly what the psalmist David felt when he wrote this. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man? Who am I that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you visitest him? To live in wonder of Jesus, church, it means to have in us an attitude of humility where, where, where we sense in us the greatness of God and the littleness of man. Because that's the attitude that leads us to worship. Here's what's tragic. That, that many Christians struggle to live in wonder. Rather, their lives are they're dull. They've lost the wonder of Christ. And here's why. I think it's because our world has become such a busy place. We have little time to pause and little time to contemplate and little time to think we don't even like silence. Little time to wonder. I mean, think about vacationers today. They don't even pause long enough to stand and wonder. They take a picture and they say, I'll, I'll, I'll go look at this later on when I get to the hotel. We only have so much daylight. Because we're too busy to pause long enough to really stand and wonder, our lives become empty, our lives become dull. And, and as a result, many people then depend on these manufactured experiences to rescue them from their tedious existence. And then on top of that, every experience has to be greater than the previous one, which then leads to addiction over time. And ultimately, we resort to a life of idolatry where we place the wonder of Christ, we replace it with cheap substitutes. What does this mean for us at Christmas time? Here's what it means. I want to challenge you the next couple of weeks to stop long enough to regain a sense of wonder in Jesus. Stop long enough to be humbled by who Christ is as compared to who you are. Stop long enough to worship him for living inside of you. His name should be called Wonderful. That takes care of the dullness of life. Notice, secondly, his name shall be called Counselor. It takes care of the decisions. Of life. Why is he called counselor? Here's why. Because he is most qualified to counsel you. You know what makes him most qualified? He created you. Literally, he was there when his father said this, let us make man. He was there. He was a part of that craftsmanship. He knows exactly what makes you tick. And he knows exactly what makes you sick. He knows exactly how you run he knows exactly how you break down and how you thrive. He knows what makes your mind work and what makes it slow down. He knows what makes your, your, your heart beat and what makes your heart stop. That means he's the most qualified to tell you how to live. Not only that, but, but because he was a man himself, he understands you. He's not a far removed God. When Jesus came down to earth, the Bible's very clear. In Hebrews 2.17, listen to this. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful 
and faithful high priest. Have, have you ever been trying to explain yourself to, to a spiritual counselor, a godly friend, a pastor, even a professional counselor? And it's like you're not getting through and you think to yourself, you just don't understand. That can never be said about Jesus. He understands everything that you're going through. So he's a qualified counselor. What does that mean to us then? What does that reveal to Jesus about Jesus for us today? Well, it reveals that he can help you with every decision of your life. You need the counsel of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Three reasons. Because you have a deceptive heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you can't trust yourself. Secondly, you have a limited mind. Isaiah 55 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You have a deceptive heart, you have a limited mind, and you have external pressures. You live in the midst of a carnal, sinful, wicked world that is screaming their counsel at you every opportunity they get. That's why the psalmist said, blessed is man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So our deceptive heart, our limited mind, and the external pressures that we face from the world make it imperative that we make Jesus our counselor. How does he counsel us? In four ways. In his word, he counsels us. Psalms 119.24, thy testimonies are also are my delight and my counselors. Through his spirit, he counsels, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Through circumstances, he counsels you. Sometimes he'll let things happen in your life outside of your control, but within his control to point you to a direction. And then through people. Proverbs 27, 9, ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Now here's the point. God counsels us in his word. By his spirit, through our circumstances, through our godly friends. That means this church, there is no need for God's people to have to learn lessons the hard way. Through our impulsive, our irresponsible, or erratic, selfish decisions. Jesus Christ, our counselor, has provided us enough counsel through those four avenues to help us avoid sin, avoid dumb decisions, and avoid irresponsible behavior. The reason you sin, the reason you make a sinful choice, the, me, the reason you get impulsive and do something dumb is because you bypassed the great, wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you this time of year, turning into a new year, take some time to reorient yourself to the counsel of God's word, God's spirit, God's people, and the circumstances that God providentially are, is orchestrating in your life to point you in a specific direction. Every decision you make in 2021 ought to be filtered through the grid of those four avenues of counsel. Amen. Don't skip a single one of them. Don't make a major life decision without talking to a godly counselor. Amen. Don't make a major life decision that cannot be backed up with this book. Don't make a, a, a major life decision unless you have clear direction from the Holy Spirit. Don't make a major life decision if God keeps closing the doors through circumstances on that major life decision. Are you with me? That'll, that'll help you have a better year. Number three, Isaiah calls him the mighty God. That helps with the demands of life. Why did he call him the mighty God? Well, it's simple. He's powerful. You believe that? He was mighty and powerful in his birth. Would you consider this for a moment? What, what a paradox. 
that, that a babe in a manger, a feeding trough, would be called a mighty God upon birth. What a paradox that is. You see, you see, last Sunday night, I think it was, we sang Away in a Manger, No Crib for a Bed, and even I had to catch myself because I sing that song like the kids sing it, like it's a, a cute little Christmas musical. You kind of feel elementary as you're singing it even. But we've lost the whole point of the song. We've become immune to the whole point of the manger. We sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed, as though it's absolutely normal for a son of God to be born in a manger. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, as though it's normal for the Savior, God in the flesh, to wake up next to cattle. We become immune to the whole point. But God was so mighty in his birth that he affected the heavens. He caused a star to appear in the sky. So mighty in his birth as a baby that he caused angels to descend from heaven. So mighty as a small child that he aroused the interest of some of the wisest men of his day to travel hundreds of miles to worship him. But he was also mighty in his death. How was he mighty in his death? Some might interpret his death to be a moment of weakness as they see the renderings of Christ on a cross hanging there bloody and beaten and being mocked. But the fact that the Son of God restrained his strength to retaliate and rescue himself was a sign of his mighty power. It's called meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. And his death was a mighty display of his power as he refused to execute it on his, on his uh, persecutors. But then his resurrection was powerful. Acts 2.24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Here's why. Because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Did you catch that? He's so powerful that it was impossible for him to stay dead. And then, I love this, he'll be mighty powerful in his return. As he comes back to earth, not as a suffering lamb, but as the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah. He will thunder his judgment upon the wicked. He'll defeat Satan for good and cast him in the lake of fire. Then he'll powerfully bring down the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. He is a mighty God. What does that mean for you? It's awesome. It means that he will give you power to handle every demanding part of your life. He will help you through the demands of your life. You know how? His mighty power will work in you. In you. Philippians 1, 6, being confident in this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Did you know that God doesn't just create you, let you be born, and then he puts his tools to the side and goes to the next person? You understand that the moment he creates you, he is constantly working on you. The Bible says from glory to glory, he is changing to be more and more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He's working in you every day. If you let him the fruit of his spirit, love and joy and peace and long suffering and gentleness and goodness and, and faith and temperance and meekness. Isn't that great? The heavenly father never ceases to work on you. I love that kid song. He's still working on me. To make me what I ought to be. Forgot the rest of the song, but that was two good lines. <laughs> Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars, and Bethlehem star that I couldn't see the other night. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on 
Me. Thanks, Dad. Got you, man. His mighty power works through us, not just in us. It works through us. Isn't it a great feeling to know God used you to do something great? You know, I know he wants to work through you. I, I got to thinking. I just looked through the, through the pages of Scripture for just a couple of minutes, and I found that he worked through a stuttering man named Moses. Worked through a scared man named Gideon, an adulterous man named David, a young man named Daniel, an inconsistent man named Peter, a murderous man named Paul, an unknown girl named Mary. Come on, he wants to work through you. This mighty power works for us. This is the passage that, our, that my dad preached uh, at Lubbock this last weekend, but in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but it was bad enough for the Apostle Paul to ask God three different times, take this out of my life, but God wouldn't remove the pain. Instead, he gave Paul the power to not just escape the pain, not just endure the pain, but to triumph in the pain. And he told Paul this, my grace is sufficient for thee. And God's grace, that's his mighty power, can be the same thing for you. It can turn your greatest pain into your greatest power for the glory of God. I know for a fact some of you are bearing burdens this Christmas season. I know that you're not walking light. I, I know that you're carrying things in your life right now that you would rather not carry. But, but here's the great thing, because Jesus is the, the mighty God, he can give that mighty power to meet the need and to handle it and to solve it and to perform Romans 8.28 to work it for your good and for his glory. That's good. Here's the fourth thing he calls him, the everlasting father. This takes care of the dimensions of life. I, why does he call him the everlasting father? To me, I don't know if, if you're thinking with me tonight, but he's talking about Jesus, the son. And so it seems to be a theological contradiction. If Jesus is the son, he can't be the father. What is Isaiah saying? Because we know that each member of the Godhead is separate from each other, yet equally God. So that means both the Son and Father are God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son's not the Father. Well, the tension's resolved when you study how the, the, the common Old Testament Jew would use the word Father in that day. They recognized the word Father to mean this, the originator of. The author of, like when Jesus called Satan the father of lies, he was stating that Satan is the, the originator of the lie. So in calling Jesus the everlasting father, Isaiah is saying this, he is the originator of that which is everlasting. He's the author of everything eternal. So, so think about this. He came to earth to reveal the eternal and he died that we might share in the eternal. So when Jesus Christ was born at Bethlehem, time and eternity met in a person. A gift was given that day to us. But when he died at Calvary, time and eternity, they met in a price that was paid. And that price that day on Calvary met the demands of God's holy law and opened the way for sinners to be forgiven and share in the eternal. Now listen, religion can never take away sins. Religion can never give the sinner a share in eternity because religion belongs to time. We need a Savior who breaks into time from eternity and who's able to take away our sins and praise the Lord that Jesus, the author of all things eternal, did that for us. And that's exactly what it means for us. We can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can share in His eternal heaven. But we don't have to wait 
until heaven to share in his eternity. This is great. His eternality can change our lives as he gives us eternal purpose and quality for our everyday lives. Look at this verse. I am come, Jesus said, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Did you know that eternal life means more than just living forever? Even the lost get to exist forever. Eternal life means the life of eternity, both here and there. It's the experience that we have in Christ right here and now. The eternal life in Christ is the abundant life. But but I want you to notice the phrase that I left out of that verse because this is how that verse starts. The thief, that Satan, cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. Watch here. If Satan has lost your soul for all eternity, and if you're saved, he has, praise the Lord then you better believe that he's going to to, to be after your life while you're on earth. He's going to try and steal every bit of joy and kill every meaningful relationship and destroy every good and godly thing in your life. That's why you have to remind yourself daily that Jesus is your everlasting father. If you center your life on him, he will give you the abundant life that the devil is daily trying to rob you of. But you have to daily reorient yourself to experience this kind of life. Watch here. That means you got to wake up every day and remind yourself to set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You have to daily remind yourself to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, not on earth. You have to daily remind yourself to live with eternity in view and stop making your decisions for the here and now. Yes, he's the everlasting father. We get a share in his eternity, but we need to share in his eternality right now. We need to live for eternity. When we live for, for, for the everlasting Father, that, that brings us into a whole new dimension of life. We're no longer empty. We're no longer impulsive just for right now. Boy, we think of our marriage, we think of our parenting, we think of our stewardship, we think of our relationships. We think of everything in light of a whole new dimension. And that's the Eternal. Are you with me tonight? His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and lastly, the Prince of Peace. Takes care of the disturbances of life. Why is he called the Prince of Peace? You know why? Because he is peace. It's his character. It's who he is. Like when he was asleep in the ship. In the midst of a storm so threatening that even the professional fishermen in the boat were scared to death. Like when over 5,000 people wanted fed and all he had was the lunch of a little boy. He was at peace while his disciples were scrambling around complaining about not having enough bread. Like in the garden, Peter pulled out a sword and declared war while Jesus calmly faced the the mob. He, He peacefully surrendered to the arresting officers even though he knew exactly what awaited him on the cross. He even frustrated his accusers because he wouldn't say a word. He was at peace. It's who he was, which means something incredible for us. He can be peace for us. Are you listening? Peace for us in salvation. Colossians says, and having made peace through the blood of of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Did you know that your sin brought enmity between you and God, but the prince of peace endured the cross so that you might have peace with God and be saved? Boy, have you gotten over that? 
Did that just hit you in the heart or did that go right over your head? That literally you are an enemy to God. And Jesus brought peace. And you did nothing but believe in him to get it. Amazing. Look, look how the peace of God can, can, can come into our life during troubling times according to John 14. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I, I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Holy Spirit is that Prince of Peace that lives inside of us and walks with us every day through the difficult days and dark days and troubling days and painful days of our life. Have you ever been through a storm and just thank God for the Prince of Peace? We often say it, and it's so true when we're going through a difficult time. I don't know how I would do this without the Lord. I don't know how people do this without the Lord. And it's so true. The Holy Spirit's ministry of peace is amazing. And then one day, I love this, Jesus will bring peace on earth. At his second coming, when he defeats his enemies, establishes his kingdom. And reading this passage right here is worth the price of admission tonight. One of my favorite in the Bible. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And here's where the peace comes in this promise. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither there shall, be, shall there be no, any more pain, but the former things are all passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. One day, one day, one day. I don't want to be... Dramatic or cliche driven, but one day we will not turn on the news and be shocked. We will not be frustrated by a politician or lied to by one either. We won't even have an election. Don't want to be insensitive, but there will be no virus. There will be no ventilators. Are you with me? This is what Jesus being called the Prince of Peace means. It means that, that, that one day, one day, and you better believe it, it's our only hope. One day he will bring peace to this crazy place. Peace to this crazy place. I was riding with Kevin. Um, I, I think Jenny was in a car. And uh, he said, Daniel's mom. That's you, Carla. He says, Daniel, Daniel's mom told me that that if we see the Bethlehem star, that's probably going to be the tribulation that night. I don't know if you told him that or not. But he says, when we see the Bethlehem star, that's going to be the tribulation. And uh, so I had to, you know, every preacher kid, you know, anytime they heard the word tribulation, they doubt their salvation immediately. It's just the truth. And, uh, and so I had to stop, give them a whole, you know, lesson on why he's saved and he won't have to endure that but but when I stop to think about it it really is 
it's a brilliant thing and it's, it's a matter of peace that I won't be part of that. Genuinely. Because I was saved as a seven-year-old boy and I got to tell my son, yeah, son, the tribulation's coming and it might come. It might come tonight. But here's the good news. The rapture comes before that. And if you're saved, I'm saved, we're going to be out of here before that. And I don't know about you, but that brings peace. It brings peace to my soul. But you know that the promise of heaven, it's not just some kind of spiritual luxury that we bask in here on earth. Man, it ought to motivate us to be peacemakers. You know what I mean by that? I'm not just talking about you're the referee between two people fighting. I mean that you introduce people to the Prince of Peace. You show people the peace of God who are at war inside of their soul. And some of you are going to be, going to be around family members. There's nothing but war and turmoil inside of their heart right now. And the way 2020 is gone, I think that some of your lost family members and friends this holiday season are going to be ultra sensitive to death and to eternity and spiritual things. And if I were you, I would be real sensitive to the open doors that God gives you. And I would beg God for boldness. Because if you can't see the signs of, his, of the times, if what's going on in our, not, just, not our nation, I'm talking about the world at large, if you don't see things working together according to the scripture, if it's not motivating you to tell people about the Prince of Peace, man, you need a wake-up call. We ought to be more urgent right now to share the gospel than we ever have been before. I mean that with all of my heart, church. We got to be serious about that. Isaiah says his name is wonder. It's a good verse, isn't it? Man, it's, it's just packed full. It takes the care of the dullness of life. His, his name is counselor. It helps you through the decisions of life. His name is mighty God. It helps you with the demands of life. His name is Everlasting Father. It takes you to a whole new dimension of life. His name is Prince of Peace. It, it helps you through the disturbances of life. What part of Jesus' name in those five dimensions, what part speaks to you the most right now? Do you need his counsel? Do you need his power? You, do you, does your life need to be brought back to living for eternity? Do you need his peace? Have you lost the wonder of Christ? Do you, do you ever stop long enough to stand in awe of his greatness and your smallness and that he would live inside of you? What part of his name has the Holy Spirit used to bring you to a point of either thankfulness, worship, or repentance tonight? Because studying this, I mean, I look at this on on. on that verse, just, just on paper, not thinking through it like I did enough to write the message. I look at that, and it's very easy to just be a, a verse that we memorize and one of our kids says in a Christmas program. Or that we sing songs about the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God. Those songs are everywhere. It's, but it's another thing to dig into what these names mean. What they really reveal about Jesus and what they mean to us. What has the Holy Spirit spoken to your heart? Here's how I think we ought to respond tonight. Give me it's Christmas season and I think it just ought to bring us back to the foot of the cross. I, I think that we ought to respond, number one, with prayer. With a moment of worship where whatever name, if not all five, stuck out to you that you come and you just respond by kneeling. Saying, Jesus, thank you for who you are. 
and recount the day that you, you came to know Jesus. Can you believe that? Can you believe that at some point God, God intersected your life with the gospel and you actually know this Jesus personally? Do you know how many people have no idea of what a relationship with this Jesus feels like? And you do. I hope you do. And then what we're going to do is we're going to respond in worship. We're going to sing one of my favorite songs right now after we have a time of invitation and and public worship at an altar. We're going to sing Psalms 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Magnify the Lord with me. Glorify and praise his name together. That's a good way to end a message like that. Just to lift up the name of Jesus. So let's start on our knees. Let's end with our voices. And let's really worship Jesus right now. This is what the season's all about. Let's worship him for who he is. Let's do that right now.